The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And Ralph Bunch is the guy who puts it together. So he, he becomes the key kind of organizer and implementer. So he gathers the troops, he meets with the different countries. It's amazing because he gets so many offers. So he later says, you know, I couldn't use half of the troops that were offered to me for this peacekeeping mission, which if you know anything about peacekeeping today, you know that the secretary general has to kind of go around hat in hand trying to get troops. And it's often very difficult. It was not a problem initially. And so Bunch is, is there at the beginning and he, he introduces a lot of the key things that we associate with peacekeepers. So the first blue helmets, the idea of having no national markers, no national flags, these are all things that he argues and debates and implements. So he is really the kind of architect of that first peacekeeping mission. And he's very proud of it throughout his life. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 16th, 2022. Ralph Bunch, one of the most prominent black Americans of the 20th century, was a legendary diplomat who from his perch at the United Nations was a central player in the decolonization movement after World War II. To discuss Bunch and his accomplishments, I spoke with Cal Rostiala, the Promise Institute Distinguished Professor of Comparative and International Law at UCLA, about his new book, The Absolutely Indispensable Man, Ralph Bunch, The United Nations, and the Fight to End Empire. We discussed the role played by Bunch and the United Nations in the decolonization movement, what made Bunch such a great diplomat, Bunch's view of the relationship between empire and domestic racial segregation, and more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 16th, 2022. Ralph Bunch, the United Nations, and the fight to end empire. Cal, who is Ralph Bunch, and why did you write a book about him? I first got to know who Ralph Bunch was because I have an office at UCLA in Bunch Hall. Bunch attended UCLA. And he was most famous for being the first black man, first black person to win a Nobel Prize. And he won a Nobel Peace Prize in, in 1950. And he had an incredible career, starting as a professor at, at Howard, uh, moving on to the OSS, to the State Department, and eventually the UN, where he spent most of his career as Undersecretary General. And so he has a really extraordinary life that I honestly didn't didn't know enough about. And, and the book was a chance to kind of dive into that and, and to tell a story, a larger story about his contributions. 
So I didn't know nearly enough about him as well. And I learned a ton from the book. So Bunch spent most of his professional life, as you said, in the United Nations, but he had an interesting career before he got there and how he got there is kind of interesting. Can you tell us, basically, you touched on some of the points, but the high points before he got to the UN? Yeah. So he. So let me first say the, the book is really a kind of professional biography. I, I probably address his early life in maybe 10 pages or something. Uh, so I don't get into his childhood in any deep way, but he ends up, uh, he's born in Detroit. He moves to LA. He goes to UCLA, as I mentioned, uh, right at the start of the existence of UCLA. And he goes off to Harvard for a PhD in government. And at that point, he's really one of the only black students at Harvard, also true at UCLA. Uh, and he's he's a really fantastic student. He wins this uh, top and prize from the Harvard government department. Uh, from there, he's recruited to Howard, even before he's done with his PhD, and he becomes a professor of political science at Howard. And that's really the start of his interest in one of the main themes of the book, which I'm sure we'll get into, which is decolonization and, and the, the broader question of, of who rules who and, and, and how, how we can end it. And while he's at Howard, he is recruited into what becomes the OSS. It's actually a kind of office that started even before the U.S. enters the war and even before the creation of the OSS, which is the the precursor to the CIA. And he's recruited in as an Africa expert because he had done his PhD on colonial governance in Africa. And there were really very few people who knew anything about Africa in the United States. So he's recommended. He, uh, He joins the Roosevelt administration a few months before Pearl Harbor, and then from there, uh, he ends up staying for several several years in the Roosevelt administration, moving into the State Department, helping to actually negotiate the UN Charter, and then eventually goes to the UN after the war is over. And he basically spent the rest of his professional life there. Yes. You know, basically the book is about one huge central theme in the book is Bunch's role at the UN managing and responding to the decolonization movement after World War II, as you just suggested. And, and that's that's the central to kind of tied together theme of the book. Yes. But as you as you point out in the book, neither Bunch nor the United Nations anticipated the speed or scale of decolonization after World War II. As late as the 30s, Bunch seemed to assume that African independence was a long way off and he didn't he seemed to think that decolonization generally was a long way off. And then you tell the funny and revealing story about how the architects of the United Nations building in 1947 proposed that the building accommodate 70 nations. This is in 1947. There were 59 nations at the time. So even the architects and the people in the organization didn't really plan on it, it seems. And Bunch didn't, didn't seem to fully appreciate what was about to happen. Can you tell us about that context? Yeah, yeah, that is a really interesting part of obviously the the 20th century generally this book and his life. I'll just back up and say if you get into the pre-war era, which I think a lot of us whether as international lawyers or or political scientists or others uh working in politics don't really think about enough. Uh that era was really dominated by colonialism. And so, you know, it's the British, the French, obviously are the two biggest, but there are many other examples of colonial empires. And so when when Ralph Bunch is is both a professor and then even even joining the war effort, the dominant sort of feature of geopolitics is empire. And 
in fact, you can see World War II in a sense as a kind of battle between those who, you know, who had empires and those who, who had lost them. And he is very concerned about that from the beginning. It's, it's as we talked about, his PhD topic is on colonial governance, kind of comparative colonial governance. But he doesn't see it coming. And you're absolutely right to say, you know, it's a, it's a widely held view that, that the process of decolonization, while perhaps desirable, some people didn't think it was desirable, but perhaps desirable in the minds of people at the time, was certainly a long way off. And that was his view. And of course, there were those who thought that it wasn't even desirable. So uh, it's a pretty dramatic turnaround by the time we get to the 50s and 60s. And a lot of what made his career so interesting, and I think makes his story so interesting, is exactly how how that happened. And I don't purport to explain in this book uh, something as big as decolonization, but I do try to make the case that both the United Nations and Ralph Bunch were really at the center of that process in a lot of ways and played a very important role in, in what unspooled uh, quite quickly. And I think if we look back, is really one of the great revolutions in, in political history. So tell us more about their involvement. I mean, the UN Charter, if you read it, it's a great power document. Uh, in many respects, it talks about the trustee system but it doesn't, it's not obviously a document built or designed for decolonization. How did the United Nations play that role? What, what, were, the, what were the main moving parts? Yeah, I completely agree that the charter, first of all, it was a very much a U.S. creation, though obviously other, other great powers had a pretty big hand in it. Um, but the notion was a consortium of great powers in the Security Council, that was the centerpiece of it and the real focus. And the issues around colonialism were were at the periphery, though those were Ralph Bunch's interests. Those were the things he focused on. They were definitely not central to, uh, you know, when 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 Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill are meeting in Yalta, they're not really focused on, on that part. But it is part of the charter, and it's part of the charter because it had been part of the League, you know, in many ways, you mean the League of Nations? Sorry, the League of Nations. Yeah. It had been part of the League of Nations, which, you know, is often viewed as this kind of failure or something, you know, something that um, isn't a really salutary example of anything. But the League ends up informing the UN Charter quite a bit. And one of the ways that it does that is in this issue around colonies that are taken from defeated powers. So the League creates a system known as the Mandate System, uh, which Bunch studied. And the mandate system was essentially Ottoman and German territories uh, that had had been colonies and then were sort of handed to the British or the French to rule for a while with the goal of independence, though that didn't necessarily happen or happen very quickly. And the trusteeship you mentioned provisions in the UN Charter, which was a very central focus of, of Ralph Bunch's work at the State Department, was in many ways an updating of that system. And so the same basic idea, how do we take these territories and as well as others. So the trusteeship system allowed for other territories to be kind of added to this ledger and then guided towards independence. Again, with a pretty long timeline in mind, but eventually guided towards independence. So, so that was in the charter and, and self-determination generally is in the charter. And so there's, you know, there's a general sense that colonialism is something that's a way station in kind of world history. Uh, but again, it's all about the timing and uh, and how quickly it's going to happen and exactly how it's going to happen. But so how did it happen? I mean, what was what did Bunch and the UN do? It's it's a surprising story because it wasn't really anticipated. I mean, I'm thinking about peacekeeping. I'm thinking about mediation. I'm thinking about the UN's role in pushing along decolonization. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, initially it doesn't, um, there's a struggle. The United States is is pushing Britain and to some degree France as well uh, to really roll back their empire for many reasons. And just, I think uh, listeners probably are somewhat familiar with some of this, but, you know, of course the United States has, and we have an empire even today in some ways. Uh, we had an imperial moment in the early 20th century that was pretty profound, but we as a nation have tended to take the view that imperialism is something we don't engage in and we don't really like. And that was a position that Roosevelt took vis-a-vis Churchill, for example. So, so there were kind of deep political pressures to, to push back against colonialism. And the UN pretty quickly becomes a site for that to take place. So both using the trusteeship provisions that I talked about, but that was a pretty small group of, of territories. It really ends up taking root in the General Assembly almost from the beginning. And one of the things that I map out in the book is that there were ideas on the table because of the work that Ralph Bunch did in crafting the trusteeship provisions that get picked up in the General Assembly by countries like India, for example, which uh, gains its independence in 1947. And interestingly, was even a signatory of the UN Charter, even though at that point it was still part of the British Empire. And and they start pushing and pushing in the General Assembly for more scrutiny, uh, more reporting and review of what colonial powers are doing. And it's not like the League. The League was pretty toothless on this point. It's much more meaningful. And the imperial powers are not happy about it. Uh, but there's both the United States and the Soviet Union for differing reasons and in differing ways, taking a pretty strongly anti-colonial stance. And then the GA as a place, the General Assembly as a place where these either newly decolonized states like India or states that just had an interest in this issue uh, could use that as a way to kind of push rhetorically the idea that independence was something that had to happen soon. And that has a ratchet effect. And as more states gain their independence, the General Assembly becomes even more significant. So, so it's a sort of interesting story about how this wasn't intended. I don't think anyone pictured the General Assembly being the center of this, but it ends up being the center of this movement. And as you pointed out earlier, it happens so fast that no one really sees it coming. And within basically you know, 15 years, 20 at, at the most, after the end of the war, the process of unraveling European empire that took hundreds of years to put together is pretty much over. Okay, tell us about Bunch's role in this. So Bunch from the beginning is always interested in colonialism and he's interested in it for a couple of reasons. One, he's a political scientist. He's looking for a topic as a PhD student and it's, an, it's, it's a good one. Two, he's a black man in America who is very focused and very interested in racial justice questions. And he sees colonialism as a form of racial oppression, as a form of white world supremacy. And he sees it as twinned to, and this is an important theme of the book, it's twinned to the experiences he has in Jim Crow, Washington, where he's living in the 1930s and, and, and 1940s. And so it's something that's both personal and professional for him. And so when he enters government service, and especially when he gets into the State Department, he's really eager to see put into place some way to make, make this process of decolonization that he hopes will take place happen faster. So his first step is just charter provisions about trusteeship and the like. Then once he joins the UN shortly after the war ends, he joins the trusteeship division and that's his first job. And he's focused directly on, on trying to assist uh, these territories and people. So for example, one of the provisions 
that the charter has uh, and that the trusteeship process has is that uh, different peoples, particularly in Africa and Asia, where most of the colonies are, can actually come and speak at the UN and petition for things. And he's very active in all of that. So he's sort of pushing that all along. But I think in a sort of deeper sense, something that you mentioned a moment ago is really significant, which is he gets involved, and I know we'll get into this in some detail, he gets involved in two things that are really critical to making decolonization work. Uh, One is conflict mediation, because decolonization turns out to be fairly conflictual in a lot of cases. And likewise, the second is the development, the birth of UN peacekeeping, which he has a very big hand in. And both mediation and peacekeeping transcend the the context of decolonization, but they're very, very helpful to enabling decolonization to occur in a relatively peaceful way. And he's absolutely central to both of those. And both of those, I I do want to go into both of those. Both of those elements of the UN process, I guess you'd call it, or, or his use of the UN process, they're not really contemplated by the charter. It's just an institution that you know, it happens to be the, the salient institution that is the go-to institution for both mediation, conflict resolution, and peacekeeping after the war. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So for peacekeeping, this is a really uh, important point and kind of an interesting one that the charter doesn't mention peacekeeping. So peace is mentioned 50 times in the charter, but peacekeeping doesn't appear. And so, and arguably wasn't really contemplated, though there are some roots to peacekeeping. Uh, it's not like it's never happened until the UN era. There are some kind of precursors in the league era and even before, depending on how you define it. But it's definitely not a major, it, it's not a major thing that that takes place. And so when the charter is being drafted, this is not envisioned uh, as something that's going to be a really central part of the UN story. And of course, with hindsight, looking at it today, we know peacekeeping, the peacekeeping budget currently is is often larger than the entire rest of the budget. So peacekeeping is absolutely central to what the UN does today, and especially, let's say, in the 90s at its height. So none of that is really foreseen. Mediation, you could argue, appears in the charter in different ways with regard to the Security Council and its efforts at at kind of constraining uh, conflict and promoting peace. But it's not central. It's really thought of as something the Security Council would do or would push. And it ends up being something that actually the secretariat of the UN does quite a bit. And Ralph Bunch himself is sort of the absolute chief mediator. So so you're right. Both of these things are sort of fringe elements in what was really meant to be a document to set up a great power consortium uh, to police the world, you know, the, the, the four policemen, as Roosevelt talked about. So these were all at the periphery, but they end up being quite central. So tell us about what I guess is his most famous... Uh, diplomatic or mediation conflict resolution success, the for which he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, so this was a, a an issue that grew directly out of the League mandate system we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, and it involved the territory of Palestine, then known as kind of the mandatory British mandatory Palestine, and it had been an Ottoman territory after uh, the end of World War One. It's handed to the British. Uh, The British are trying to deal with the problem that we still face today of how two peoples can live in the same territory. And they basically, at some point after the war, sort of throw up their hands and say, we're going to hand this problem to the UN. They can't solve it. And just as an aside, it's quite interesting to go back to the 1930s and in some ways sort of sad and see so many of the same debates and positions being taken and, you know, with no real, no real change 
in, in, in a lot of things, even today, almost a century later. But in any event, they handed off to, to, the, to the new UN. And pretty quickly, Ralph Bunch becomes one of the central figures in dealing with the disposition of Palestine. He doesn't know anything about the Middle East. He was an Africa specialist. And he's, you know, he's brought into the U.S. government because he's an Africanist. He doesn't really know the Middle East, but he does know about colonialism. And so, and he's a professor. And so he's, or former professor. So he's sent there uh, to the Middle East at first to try to understand the, what's the problem? How do we, how do we think about a solution? Uh, and then he takes on various roles and we can get into more detail if you like. But, but the one that really matters for your question is uh, once Israel declares independence in 1948 and there's extensive conflict, war in the region, the Security Council wants to put a UN mediator in place. And the UN mediator initially is a Swedish aristocrat named Count Folk Bernadotte. And Ralph Bunch is appointed kind of his deputy. And they together try to craft a solution to the problem of Arabs and Israelis and their conflict over the same land. And there's a lot of pushback. And eventually, Bernadotte is actually assassinated. And it's kind of an amazing story because Ralph Bunch was meant to be in the car on that particular day. And instead, he misses, he misses a plane and, and he's very unhappy to be late, but it turns out to be absolutely uh, critical to his, his life, his future. And Bernadotte's kind of car caravan driving through Jerusalem is ambushed by a dissident uh, kind of underground Jewish militia disguised as Israeli soldiers. And they gun him down and think they are gunning down Ralph Bunch. Uh, but of course, Bunch is not there. And so once that happens, first of all, it shocks the international community. It's a huge issue. But Ralph Bunch steps in as, as regular mediator. He takes over. And he's very successful as a mediator. And he ends up negotiating four different armistice agreements with uh, Israel and Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon and Syria. And those agreements and that process is what uh, nets him the Nobel Peace Prize. And they're viewed as a really big breakthrough. And in a sense, they were. I mean, obviously, with hindsight, we know that he did not bring peace uh, to the region in any really lasting way. But he made a pretty major contribution. And it was recognized as such at the time. And you you go into some detail about the negotiations and what made him a great diplomat and a great great in this role. Can you give us some of that? Sure. So so first of all, he was a very down-to-earth kind of guy. He had grown up in what we might now call South Central Los Angeles, very modest, very modest family background. And so in that way, he was a real contrast to the Count, who of course was, you know, this kind of Swedish aristocrat and nephew of the king and all of that. And I think his his down-to-earth demeanor and style endeared him to a lot of people, particularly the Israelis. They were very, very fond of Bunch and they liked him as a, as a negotiator. But he was able to use his, his sort of charm and gregariousness as a tool in negotiating. So the context for this was he and the Count, they had, they had thought this up together, had decided to take the negotiations to the island of Rhodes, which was a, you know, kind of a short flight away uh, from Palestine, just far enough that everyone was sort of out of the maelstrom of of the politics of the region, but close enough that they could get back and forth. And a little bit like the Dayton Accords in the 90s, you know, the idea was let's hold everyone up in this hotel and sort of force them to negotiate in a kind of hermetically sealed environment. 
And so that was the environment he worked in. And he would he would use both sort of formal elements, but also social elements. So he was a great pool player. He had played a lot of pool in LA as a as a high school student and college student. So he would have these late night pool games and uh, he was kind of a night owl. And, you know, once they'd hit midnight, they'd have a couple of drinks or whatever. And he'd say, okay, now we're going to get, let's talk. And he'd sort of force discussion, but he would also do these very formal things around a square table with a gavel. And so he used a number of different techniques to kind of break down the antipathy and to get each side to see the other with some sympathy and, and some understanding. And he was pretty effective at that. So, so in the end, he's able to negotiate these armistices that people really didn't think were possible. And so that, uh, that makes him a kind of diplomatic hero. And honestly, even before he gets the Nobel Peace Prize, this is all over, you know, major newspapers and, and he's a pretty big deal just for having done this. His techniques then end up being used in many future conflicts, Yemen, Cyprus, et cetera. But he did win the Nobel Peace Prize and he became, he went from being kind of an obscure diplomat, obscure UN official to being globally famous. And um, how did that change his life? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, before the Nobel Peace Prize, I would say he had, you know, he's professionally successful, but he was not, definitely not known to the public outside of maybe the the black press would publish a few profiles in the in the run up to his getting the Peace Prize. Because it was so unusual for, first of all, there were really, when he gets into the State Department and he actually rises to a certain level, he's the only first Black person to ever hold a kind of desk position at the State Department and be in charge of a kind of wing. And so it's pretty rare. So he's attracted some attention uh, from Black newspapers, but but that's really it. He does not break through to kind of uh, mainstream white America until the Nobel Peace Prize. And when he gets that prize, it's amazing. So I think it's a combination of the fact that what he did was significant, uh, the Cold War, you know, we can get into why he was viewed as uh, such an incredible figure, but he's sort of instantly catapulted to celebrity. So he gets a ticker tape parade down Broadway. Uh, He, in the, I opened the book this way, in the 1951 Oscars, when they get to the Best Picture Award, he's actually brought on stage by Fred Astaire to hand out the Best Picture Award, which you know, today is just so fanciful to think that a UN official would be up there, you know, with like Ricky Gervais introducing him or something. It's just crazy. But that was the, that was the level of fame he had. So uh, he's, he gives speeches all over. He gets job offers all over. Truman tries to bring him back to Washington as basically every president uh, during the Cold War did try to bring him back into the U.S. government. So it's really, really transformative. And he basically never stops being a celebrity, even even into the 60s as he becomes kind of a, you know, more of an eminence. He's still incredibly well-known and and well-respected. But he also never stopped being a UN diplomat, UN official. And uh, so he basically, you know, said no to all those other professional requests and he stayed in the UN. And he taught you, you, you cite a 1969 interview where he said, that the Nobel Peace Prize uh, is what attracted all the attention and gave him fame. But he said the thing that gave him most satisfaction, and I think the thing that he was most proud of, was not that role, but his role in uh, in peacekeeping, which is another element of what the UN was doing during this period. So can you talk about that? What were the highlights of his achievements in peacekeeping? And why is, you know, we think of peacekeeping today as, how successful is it? Does it work? Is, is the UN doing a good job? 
but you make the case that it was really kind of a revolutionary role for the United Nations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so next year in 2023, the 75th anniversary of peacekeeping will be celebrated. And the usual marker for that is actually this Palestine episode and a, a kind of observer core that's put into place while, while he's there. So he's part of the very first steps. But those peacekeepers, they're still there. It's called the UN Trust Supervision Organization. They were observers, and so they were not really meant to be keeping the peace, but sort of watching the peace, I guess, or uh, supervising it in a way. But it was a it was an early step, but not really a full step. The full step really comes. There's a few other sort of small steps, but the 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 marker that I use in the book and that I I think is the most significant comes later during the Suez Crisis in 1956, and then and onward where he helps create something called the UN Emergency Force, which is quite large, uh, well-armed, and really a, a peacekeeping force that we would recognize today fully. And that's an amazing story. So the Suez Crisis, I confess, you know, I was aware of it. I didn't really appreciate what it was. And I'll just say as an aside, it's a, it's a, it's a turning point in the history of decolonization in the post-war, because it's one of these things where Nasser in Egypt sees the, the prime minister president of, uh, leader of Egypt, seizes the Suez Canal, essentially. And there's a complicated story about whether he can do that and various treaties and so forth, which, which is all pretty interesting for international lawyers. But at the end of the day, he, he takes it and he essentially nationalizes it. And the British, the French, and the Israelis conspire to invade, to kind of take back control. And so it's this very old-fashioned pre-war imperial kind of reaction to what Egypt does. And what's striking about it, of course, is that it's, uh, it's anachronistic by 1956 when they do it. And so it's, a, it's kind of a terrible miscalculation, strategic miscalculation on their parts, mostly because the United States is absolutely not going to back them. And we can get into the U.S. views during the Cold War more, but this was a big part of, of the U.S. pivoting to recognizing that while their allies, their traditional allies like the British were very important, they had to court these new states or soon to be states that they anticipated that were joining the international community from the, from the colonial world. And that supporting the British and French and Suez was, was absolutely the wrong move. So that's part of what helps, you know, helps the Suez crisis unfold in the way it does. But of course it's deadlocked in the security council. The general assembly ends up using uh, one of its first emergency sessions to authorize this emergency force. And Ralph Bunch is the guy who puts it together. So he, he becomes the key kind of organizer and implementer. So he gathers the troops, he meets with the different countries. It's amazing because he gets so many offers. So he later says, you know, I couldn't use half of the troops that were offered to me for this peacekeeping mission, which if you know anything about peacekeeping today, you know that the secretary general has to kind of go around hat in hand trying to get troops. And it's often very difficult. It was not a problem initially. And so Bunch is, is there at the beginning, and he, he introduces a lot of the key things that we associate with peacekeepers. So the first blue helmets, the idea of having no national markers, no national flags. These are all things that he argues and debates and implements. So he is really the kind of architect of that first peacekeeping mission. And he's very proud of it throughout his life. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. 
it's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. And that wasn't the only one he was involved in. You argue, I think you argue that peacekeeping has gotten a, a kind of bum rap over the course of, since the UN was founded, and it's actually a more important and consequential institution than we appreciate. Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, peacekeeping has many problems, so I don't want to, I don't want to overlook those, uh, you know, obviously malfeasance on the part of peacekeepers themselves, kind of strategic issues about how they're used or misused by the Security Council. So there are many ways to critique peacekeeping, but you know, if you look at, there's some really good work in political science on this uh, that look at the effect of peacekeeping on conflict and dampening conflict or preventing the resurgence of conflict. And the evidence is pretty powerful that peacekeeping has a strong positive effect and the UN tends to intervene in some of the hardest cases. And while there are many failures, on balance, it's been quite successful as a, you know, as, a, as an institution. And so I do think peacekeeping is quite significant and it becomes, as we talked about, something the UN does quite a bit. So, you know, there's a few, these few preliminary examples before Suez. Suez is the big test uh, that UN emergency force lasts for about 10 years and then it's renewed later after the 73 war. Uh, But then there are many others, Congo, which he's part of. And so by the time Ralph Bunch dies in 1971, I think there's been roughly 10 peacekeeping missions at that point. After the end of the Cold War, there's an explosion, and the UN ends up creating something like four missions on average every year during the 1990s. So there's a really big move to double down on peacekeeping. But again, it's it's a pretty successful institution and one that uh, I think he was rightly proud to have been a part of. So you talk, this is taken directly from your book, uh, in 1956, shortly before Ghana's independence from Britain kicked off a huge wave of Af- African liberation Bunch noted what he termed the UN dilemma, internationalism versus the encouragement of new nationalisms. Can you talk about that? Yes. So he was worried about the way that nationalism and the politics of nationalism in new nations could undermine what he saw as absolutely central, which is the multilateral process of UN cooperation. So, So first of all, he was as you might guess from someone who spent 25 years at the UN, a true believer in the United Nations and someone who really thought that the international community had to work collaboratively through the UN to be effective. So as these new nations are sort of coming online and, and joining the UN almost immediately, it's one of the very first things they want to do. It's a, it's a powerful symbol of their sovereignty that they've just acquired. He does have a lot of concerns about the, the sort of ways in which they might integrate into the international community. And 
you know, this was also a challenge because many of these states, and this is true for the Congo episode, that's a huge part of his career, had unstable and untested political coalitions, sort of by definition, they were brand new. And any kind of indigenous capacity to govern and to sort out their politics had often been repressed, sometimes quite brutally, by European powers. And on top of it, particularly in Africa, many of these states had borders that were entirely artificial by any kind of usual metric of either religious or linguistic or ethnic ties. And so these were very complicated political processes that were unfolding. And Bunch was often there, literally there, to kind of welcome new states in. That was an important role that he played as they gained their independence. But then he, you know, he worried about how they might sort of unfold after that. And uh, I think Congo is the best example where where Congo, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about this, very quickly goes off the rails. You should talk about it now. Just tell us how, tell us about this story in the context of Congo. Yeah, this is a really amazing story that I found just so fascinating to kind of dig into. So, so first of all, 1960, when Congo becomes independent, is a year that Ralph Bunch dubs the Year of Africa. And that's a name that still, a phrase that still gets used today. Uh, 17 states gain their independence in a single year. So this is like the high point of this wave of decolonization that comes uh, you know, quite fast. And it's really joyous in many ways and often peaceful, but not always. And so Congo is an example where it, it doesn't go well. And Congo is, first of all, enormous. And as everything I said a moment ago about the difficulties of a new state are true for Congo, probably more than almost any other place. So it's it's absolutely huge. Uh, the Belgians rule in a brutal manner. There's only 17 college graduates in the entire territory when they gain independence. Uh, so there's no effort whatsoever to get Congo ready for independence. And in fact, even two or three years before the independence of Congo, very few people, even within Congo, expected it to happen. And all of a sudden it happens. So it's, it's going fast and there's a lot of concern. And so Dag Hammarskjöld, who's the secretary general at the time, sends Ralph Bunch, again, as he often did, to be the, the guy on the ground at the independence ceremonies. But he tells Bunch, you know, this one might be difficult. Why don't you spend a couple of weeks, plan on a couple of weeks? It ends up being three months for Ralph Bunch and the Congo episode actually lasts for years. And within days of the independence ceremony, which doesn't go that well to begin with, in the sense that it's, you know, it's a bit, um, there's a lot of drama. Uh, within days, there's a sort of revolt and the the army is rebelling. The, the Belgians are not really taking their hands off the wheel the way that they're supposed to. I think they somehow thought they could still control Congo. And the whole place starts to break apart, including having a civil war. And that leads to the the next major peacekeeping episode, which is Bunch, again, is absolutely at the center of, but which is much larger than even what happened in Suez, thousands and thousands of troops, but most significantly, much more violent. So the UN peacekeepers eventually end up even using air power. Uh, so they're really fighting. They're taken prisoner. It's, it's a full-on war in which the UN is a participant. So that is a really amazing turn in peacekeeping that happens quite quickly. So that's an ex- the, the Congo is an example of a, maybe a tension or a paradox of a bunch's role. He was an American citizen. He was patriotic. You make clear that he was uh, patriotic throughout his life. Yes. He was very close to American presidents and American governmental elites, but he worked for the United Nations and he was clearly a UN person. He loved the United Nations. 
you know, the United Nations was a fighting ground between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. How did he manage that? How did he manage to keep his credibility I mean, in the United Nations being a, a patriotic American, uh, especially when, you know, during the Cold War and Vietnam is the great example, but, you know, what the United States was doing was hugely contested within the UN context. Yeah, absolutely. So, so he was definitely, you're absolutely right. He was a patriotic American. He was someone who really believed uh, generally in the rightness of what the U.S. does, though that, that was really tested for him in Vietnam. Um, but the Cold War is, is critical to so much of what takes place. And from the point of view of the Soviets, the Soviets were pretty intransigent in the U.N. from sort of day one. They were, I think it's fair to say, pretty difficult. They cast the first veto. They kept repeatedly cast vetoes in the beginning, overwhelmingly. And they viewed Bunch essentially as having never left the State Department. As far as they were concerned, he was still working for the U.S. And that was not true. But I think it is true that he often viewed things in the way that the U.S. government did. And he was very close, uh, you know, as we kind of alluded to this earlier in the conversation, he was always, you know, being recruited back into the U.S. government and kind of resisting. And he maintained ties. He was kind of an interlocutor between Washington and New York. And so he knew everyone at the highest levels and I think imbibed some of the thinking, even if he didn't always agree. So there was a case to be made that he was, you know, sort of pushing a U.S. position, though, frankly, the Soviets thought that of Dag Hammarskjöld as well. And they thought that of the first secretary general, Trig V. Lee. They generally viewed the U.N. as a kind of U.S. entity. And that's not entirely unfair. It, it was in a lot of ways skewed towards the U.S. initially. But... Bunch tried hard to be a kind of good civil servant and, and, and not, you know, not take sides. But I think inevitably he did end up lighting a bit more, maybe more than a bit more um, on the American side. And Congo was a great example because the Cold War at this point, this is 1960, it's really a high point. And every single new state that is gaining their independence is viewed as a potential, you know, ally or client of one or the, or the other of the rivals in the Cold War. And so the US and the Soviet Union are constantly trying to figure out, one, how to keep the other out, but then at the same time, how to kind of wheel this new country into their orbit. And, and so Congo is totally uh, kind of a pawn in this larger struggle. And Bunch is right at the center of it. What, but what was his view towards Vietnam? Vietnam is an interesting and sad story for him. So by the time we get into the 60s, when Vietnam really starts to unfold, let's say by the mid 60s, Bunch is pretty senior in the in the in the UN. Dag Hammarskjöld ends up dying during the Congo operation in a crazy plane crash that uh, still to this day is a bit mysterious. And a new Secretary General comes in, Utant of Burma, who uh, is pretty strongly outspoken about Vietnam, in part because he himself came from a formerly colonized, he was from Burma, came from a formerly colonized state. And he really saw the Vietnam War as a colonial war, not as a kind of fight of democracy against uh, communism or something like that. And so he's really outspoken. Bunch ends up being absolutely critical to the many efforts by the White House and by the American establishment to Use the use the UN in some way to kind of manage Vietnam or maybe solve Vietnam. It's hard to say what they're really trying to do. But for Bunch, he was really distraught about the war because he pretty quickly saw that it was an unstrategic war. He, he didn't think it really made a lot of sense. He didn't really think it was a moral war because he was sympathetic to the colonial roots of it. 
And then it actually becomes a personal issue for him because his, his son, Ralph Jr., is drafted and actually goes, to, is deployed to Vietnam. So it's one of the conflicts that is by far the most troubling for him because, and he's, by this point in his life, he's seen many, many serious conflicts. And Congo was a you know, huge part of his life for years. But Vietnam is really personal for him because he's, he's always been uh, someone who thought the U.S. was generally on the side of right and, and he doesn't, doesn't think it at all here. Uh, but at the same time, he's absolutely central to this effort to kind of broker something between the U.N. and the U.S. on how to deal with Vietnam. And I alluded before to how Utan was outspoken. That drove people like, like Johnson crazy and so uh, and Dean Rusk and others. And so they're always kind of on bunch trying to say, like, how do you get them to shut up? Like, this is a real issue for us. Uh, but at the same time, trying to somehow figure out a way to usefully deploy the UN. So uh, he becomes very entangled in it and, and quite disillusioned by it. Because the, the UN ultimately didn't have any success. No, no. It was too hot and too big of an issue to be mediated. So there was various various proposals put out, the Pope and other people suggest mediation. And, but, you know, there's, this is way too big and Bunch can't really do anything. So I think partly it's frustrating for him. You know, at this point, by the mid sixties, he is the kind of world's greatest mediator and he's mediated in Cyprus. You know, he's mediated in Palestine. He's done all kinds of Congo, et cetera. So he's viewed as someone who has a magic touch, but he can't touch this one. Uh, it's just too much. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, it is a personal thing for him. And of course, you know, the the larger political climate, the ferment in the United States, he's living in the U.S. He's seeing this uh, and he's really troubled by it. So, um, so no, the U.N. doesn't end up doing much, though, though there's a lot of effort. So LBJ throws a state dinner for Utans and, of course, bunches there. There are many, many times when he's in the White House talking with or, or in Foggy Bottom at the State Department. The Fulbright Committee actually does an entire set of hearings up at the UN. They, they all fly up there. So there's various branches of the US government trying to figure out how can the UN be useful, but none of it really takes hold. But isn't, I mean, is this the limits of the United Nations? Isn't the reason that Bunch and the United Nations, I'll use the word failed here. You can correct me if you don't agree with that. Just because it involved the United States directly, and isn't that you know the limit of the United Nations? Doesn't it come when in addressing conflicts by powerful nations, as opposed to less powerful ones, where it can insert itself with the implicit backing of one or several of the big powers? Is is this one of the limitations of his diplomacy? Absolutely. I, I guess I would only differ slightly, or maybe it's an interpretive question about whether it's a failure for the reasons you just gave. So. Yeah. So the charter is designed to protect the interests of the permanent five members, the, the, right. the, the U.S., the U.K., et cetera, Soviets at that time. And so that is deliberate. That is what Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt want to create in, in, at the end of the war. And so we see this today, of course, with Ukraine. So you know, many people right now beat up the U.N. over the fact that nothing can be really done about Ukraine through the UN, but that is by design. And so absolutely what you're saying is, is correct. Vietnam uh, sort of by design could not really be touched. You know, Suez was an example where two P5 nations are involved, but it could be touched only because the United States made it so. You know, Eisenhower made an affirmative decision to say, we are not backing this. And people were creative about using the General Assembly and there was a, there was a way forward. But when you're dealing with one of the two superpowers, 
there's no way forward. So that was a frustration, uh, but it was, again, by design. So I think maybe not a failure, but a limitation, absolutely. And so Ralph Bunch understood that. He didn't like the veto uh, in the Security Council. He thought that was bad in many ways, but um, it was a reality and he knew it wasn't going to change. So this was a source of frustration, but you know he understood the, the real limits. Within those limits, he tried to do what he could, as did, as did Utant, but none of it, you know, for many reasons, I mean, Vietnam is such a complicated issue, but for many reasons, I, I really think none of it had any impact. Yeah. Okay, I want to switch to the relationship between international and domestic affairs. Bunch was eloquent throughout his life and interested in the relationship between empire, uh, global empire, and domestic racial segregation. Can you tell us about that arc? Yeah. So in his early career that we talked about, his scholarly focus is primarily on empire. But of course, as a black man in, in America in the 1930s, he's deeply personally affected and interested in segregation, uh, racial oppression. And so, and he's at Howard University, which is a place that really brings together the very best people in the country thinking about these issues. So he's steeped in that milieu from the beginning. He's very active in the NAACP. He helps create the uh, National Negro Congress, a number of other organizations that he's active in. So this is a big part of his life from from the beginning, from his professional uh, beginnings. And he did see colonialism as a piece with it, uh, as a manifestation of white supremacy, as a project of global racial justice, as, as we talked about a little bit before. And so to him, they were simply two sides of a coin that needed to be understood as part of the same process. And he would often urge people to really think globally about the larger problems uh, that this country faced and to see them in a kind of larger frame. He was not unique in that. There were others, W.E.B. Du Bois and many other leading thinkers who saw it that way. But he was the one who had the maybe was most pragmatic and also was in a position to actually make a difference because of his unique role, both at the State Department and then especially at the UN. So those were those were two sides of a coin. You know, then in addition, during the Cold War, he is one of the, he's not alone in this, but he's one of the first people to really strongly point out the fact that as the Cold War is, is really unfolding, that the US is sort of disabled and hamstrung in its efforts at attracting these new states coming out of Africa and Asia by its own racism. And that the fact that we, that Jim Crow was alive and well in many places, that segregation was still a a fact of life for many people really made it hard for the U.S. to claim, hey, we're the champion of Ghana or something like that. So we can get into that more, but that is, that is something that he talks about quite a bit, especially once he wins a Nobel Peace Prize, he's giving speeches all over the country constantly is being asked to do commencements or whatever. And he often talks about this issue that the U.S. can't have two kinds of democracy, two brands, one for export and one for import. They have to be aligned. So say more about that because it's really interesting. And and how did it, how was that view which he articulated early on? He wasn't the only one, as you say, obviously, but how did it become absorbed into the U.S., you know, foreign policy establishment in the U.S. government? I mean, how did that work? Well, you know, I want to be clear, many other people have, have written extensively about this and talked about historians and, and others uh, about this kind of issue of civil rights in the Cold War. But it's a really important and interesting story. And, you know, Bunch's role in that is, again, he's one of the early adopters of the idea that 
uh, that the U.S. I mean, I think he saw it in two ways. So he saw the Cold War as a tool to force the U.S. to push a little bit on the intransigent elements uh, in American society to say, hey, it's not just a moral issue. Of course, it always was a moral issue for him. But it's not just that, that racial justice actually is going to help us win this Cold War. So that was one side of it. But then, of course, you know, he also saw it as, as something where, you know, if we recognize the importance of racial justice, we could do, you know, we, we, we could go out and, and make friends with these different countries and, and ally with them. So, um, so he was kind of at the pivot point uh, between the external and the internal dimensions of this. But it took a lot of form. So, you know, I think some people are probably aware that in the Brown v. Board litigation, the State Department weighs in and uh, you know, so there's a there's an effort to say, hey, this is really causing us problems internationally, and we need to we need to think about changing the way we do things at home if we have any hope of winning. And, and Bunch was absolutely on board with that throughout, uh, and really, you know, of course, he was very excited about the result in Brown, um, but he also, in some ways, saw it as vindication for views that he had long held. So you're both uh, a scholar of international law. You have a law degree and a scholar of international relations. You have a PhD in political science. And your academic work is about both and their intersection. For me as a reader, I mean, I learned so much from this book about Bunch that I didn't know about. But it's also, you know, you use Bunch as a foil almost or maybe to tell the story of international law and international relations kind of in the middle half of the 20th century. Anyway, it's a great story about, and a compelling story about the history of international law, especially the United Nations and international relations in the, as I say, the middle half of the 20th century. What, you know, you spent, it seems, years on this book. Uh, It's an extraordinarily learned book. What did you learn about your disciplines from writing the book? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, I and and I appreciate everything you you said. I did try to, you know, I think I I mentioned this in the kind of the forward of the book that initially I thought about a sort of biography, but really something that was more a story about decolonization in the UN, and it became more of a biography as I wrote it, and and it is a biography today. But I, you're absolutely right. I do try to weave weave in some of these uh, broader themes about how we think about geopolitics. I guess for me, I learned a number of things that really stood out. So one, you know, I think this is maybe less true for international lawyers, certainly about the scholarship of international law than, than for political science. But, you know, we tend to kind of forget about empires and to think about, you know, the kind of classic IR conception of states and their interests and sovereignty at the center. And that's all, I think, you know, pretty important and accurate and so forth. But it's not really fully accurate. And in fact, when you get into the pre-war era, it's really not accurate at all. And in, arguably not accurate for much of the 20th century. So there's a lot there about empire and the importance of empire and also the importance of race that has been a little bit expunged from IR thinking. And even in international law, there's not enough of it. So I think an appreciation for the way that politics, world politics, was racial politics for let's say the 20s, the 30s, certainly, but even into the 40s. That was a really central feature and one that people thought about overtly. By the time you get to the the post-war era, there's a kind of effort. I mean, Nazism obviously deeply discredits racialized thinking, though it doesn't end it by any means. And so there's an effort to kind of 
move away. And then the Cold War very quickly kind of creates this billiard ball model that that you see reflected in kind of classic IR theory, but but it's still there. So I, that was really, really interesting for me to kind of understand. And then decolonization itself, which is an, an element of that, I knew something about it, of course. I thought it was important, of course, but I didn't appreciate, one, how interesting it was, and two, how significant. What a significant revolution it really was, how quickly it unfolded, and how dramatically it ended. And so in some ways, to me, this is not answered by the book, uh, but the normative change, the way that empire goes from something that's accepted and even valorized to something that's you know, ended and viewed as a kind of sad chapter is really extraordinary. And, you know, maybe it reflects the way we think about war, you know, so in the, you know, in the, and certainly in the 19th century, uh, you know, war was something that was often valorized even into the 20th century. We don't really think about that today in the same way, but this is even more dramatic. So I do find that really interesting. I learned a lot. I can't say I, I addressed it fully in this book, but I tried to at least tell that story, surface it, and show how central this particular person and the United Nations was to it. So Cal, the title of the book is The Absolutely Indispensable Man. And you're referring to Bunch, obviously. Why was he indispensable in summing up his career? Well, I took the title from something that Dean Rusk, as Secretary of State, says during, this is during the Vietnam War period, uh, says to Lyndon Johnson in introducing Bunch to Johnson, though Bunch had actually met Johnson several times at this point, but Russ sort of forgets that. They're at the White House, and he kind of brings Utant, the Secretary General, and Bunch upstairs to meet with Johnson privately. And he says, uh, this is Ralph Bunch, one of the two absolutely indispensable men at the UN. And then he quickly adds that Utant's the other one. But it's clear that Rusk, as well as Johnson and many others, saw Bunch as the real mover and shaker, the person who was indispensable. And in fact, later in this same evening, Russ tells Bunch, Utan's up for kind of renewal. And he says, you know, it doesn't really matter whether he stays on or not. You have to stay there. You have to stay at the UN. You're our guy. The UN needs you. The international community needs you. This was something many, many people said to him, especially at the end of his career when he, he really wants to retire. And he can't essentially because he's he's being either you know encouraged or sometimes practically ordered to stay. So he was absolutely indispensable in the eyes of the American government, and uh, you know arguably in the eyes of much of the international community. Many many ambassadors, as his as rumors of his impending retirement sort of circulate within the building, come up and beg him to stay on, and and he does. He's he's kind of a good soldier, and he stays on really honestly, longer than he should have because his, his health was bad and, and he, was, he was suffering, but he felt he had to. So my last question is about why Ralph Bunch is, as you put it in your book, largely forgotten today. I mean, he was world famous for decades. He was hugely plugged in to both the international community and the American government, hugely consequential and important and famous black man. But today he is kind of his he's faded in some sense. Why is that? Why is that so? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And, you know, I've been asked this question a few times. I've, I've molded myself even at UCLA where, you know, I have an office in Ralph Bunch Hall and we have a Ralph Bunch Center. A lot of students do not really know who he is. They know something about him, but they really don't know. And certainly most Americans don't. It is amazing. I think part of it is that his fame was 
his mid-century fame was a product of a kind of unique constellation of things. So, you know, one, the UN itself was brand new and very popular. So even amongst Americans, extraordinarily popular, you know, in the run-up to the negotiations over the UN, it's like 80% of Americans polled, you know, think it's really essential that we join this organization. And, uh, you know, the later years, it's, it remains quite popular, though that popularity starts to fade, of course, uh, by, you know, the, even the 60s and into the 70s. But for much of Bunch's career, the UN's extraordinarily popular. The Cold War is absolutely central to, to American life and American politics. And he's viewed as this kind of key figure, you know, with a kind of magic diplomatic touch that's really important. And he's a kind of unique figure in that while there were people like Jackie Robinson, a fellow UCLA alum who he was friendly with, considered a friend, uh, knew quite well, who had broken through the color line in different endeavors, um, there were very few Black Americans in professional settings who were widely known. It was just incredibly uncommon in that period. And it's a sort of sad statement about, uh, about our society, but that's, that's the reality. And so he was this unique kind of figure. So when you put those things together, the Cold War, the, the importance of the UN, his kind of unique form of fame, the Peace Prize, you know, was now, I think the Peace Prize is obviously still incredibly important, but it doesn't have quite the same cachet in some ways that it did then. So he was really catapulted uh, into a unique place. And I think for a lot of Americans as well, he was viewed as someone who, and this was something he resisted at times, he was viewed as a marker of progress. They could point to Ralph Bunch and say, you know, look at this person who, uh, despite being a black man, has achieved at such a high level and sort of take that as a sign that we really weren't so bad uh, as a country. And so, you know, he, of course, bristled at those kinds of uh, characterizations, but that was pretty common as well. So I think there's a number of kind of contextual reasons that made him so famous in the mid-century. To be fair, it's been 50 years since he passed away That's in 1971, so more than 50 years at this point. So it has been a long time. But I am still amazed that uh, someone as consequential as he was, as interesting as he was, as famous as he was, isn't better known. But of course, that's kind of partly why I wrote this book. And so my hope is that this book will bring him back into the public consciousness, at least for some of us, and give us an appreciation of what he did as a person, which is really remarkable. It is remarkable. Your book is remarkable. It's excellent. And I hope it does bring Bunch back to the place he should have. Cal, thank you very much. My pleasure. I really appreciate being on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and the aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. And check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.